and welcome to the Do Go Podcast with myself, Rob Watson. And in this episode, I was joined by Dina and Neil from Patch the Planet to hear all about how they are helping people to create beautiful spaces that are in harmony with nature. They share all about how it's possible for all of us to transform any space into a thriving space, not only for ourselves, but also so we can help play a part in rebalancing our environment through the use of clever design. Building community is very much at the heart of this conversation and with the right collective action we can all help to plant those much needed seeds of change during these rather challenging times that we face right now and away from the environment we talk in depth about education and the reasons behind homeschooling their young daughter and how they believe it's allowing her to flourish into the thriving unique person that she was born to be. Overall, I felt this was a really good episode. I really enjoyed it. And whether you're a complete novice in the garden or a seasons pro, I feel there's plenty of actionable tips and resources in the episode to help empower you. So on to the episode. Oh, and just one thing to touch on. I got, um, so this is the first time that I interviewed uh, two people at once. So that was a bit of a challenging for me. But then also there's plenty of distractions that were around us, whether it be the neighbor's dog or the church bells going off or even worse, in my opinion, was the uh, workmen starting to dig up the road outside my house. So that played um, a bit of a role in this, but that's something I just got to let go of and surrender. So there is a spell in this episode of about 10 minutes or so where there's, there's a bit of background noise, but I believe you can tune out of that one pretty simple and and enjoy the episode so anyway without further ado onto the episode i really appreciate you guys coming over thank you very much all right you're welcome yeah so i first got connected with you guys i found out about you um through our love of permaculture and i've been on a couple of your courses the, mm-hmm. the one the most recent one which um the forest garden one which was really inspiring for me got a real buzz because in the past i've not necessarily seen that many work in permaculture spaces so to actually mm. be in one I've watched a lot on YouTube and mm. stuff and I did my course and find out about it but I used to see one working so that was really inspiring I love the, the systems that you had and mm. it's clever stuff so I'd like to know a little bit more about um, Patch of the Planet and how it started and where you where you going with it um, okay I'll start then um, so we've both been gardening for I'd say probably about 30 years between us, if not longer. Um, And we both come from um, a place where we're really aware of the environment and conservation and treading lightly. And we've always considered organic over anything else and we've considered nature over other things. So it's kind of come together um, more recently with a name and the permaculture is the name that's being used, but it's not just about permaculture it's just it's about um enjoying outside spaces and reconnecting reconnecting ourselves with nature in a, in the back garden and beyond and bringing everybody else along for the ride as well so i suppose um yeah we've got a we've got a track record of doing our own gardens and growing food and and engaging in environmental issues in like professionally and um outside of work as well but um Patch the planet is is about trying to find a, a fresh way for people to be able to respond to their own desire to live more ecologically, uh, help address some of the environmental challenges that the world faces, and you can do that in all sorts of ways that you hear 
plenty on the radio and the television, living, you know, reducing your impact on the planet by what you buy, uh, by how you use things and so on. But quite often people have this green space of their own in the place that they live. They have their garden. And uh, we see that, each one of those, as a little patch of the planet. And if you see them not only individually, independently, as that little spot that you've got, but also it's connected to all the other spots that grows and grows and grows into a very large part of this country. You see the birds coming, you hear about the hedgehogs coming into these spaces and so on. It's, it's a living part of a planet. And the more that you can do to bring that to be a really sustainable, ecologically sound, thriving space that works for you and nature at the same time, the more you can be bringing direct impacts to the planet that you're living on with that little patch that you're responsible for as well as the other things you might want to bring to your life. So that's what we're trying to do with Patch of the Planet, really, is to help people design and live in green spaces that are um, exactly what they want for, pe- for them as people and families, but that can work fantastically for growing food and for, can work for wildlife and so on as well. It sounds incredible. So do you actually go out to places then? You go out to people's homes and you do consultations and you help them to develop their patch? We've got quite a wide range of things going on at the moment. We um, we do we do exactly that. We go out and speak to people, um, just have a look around and see what space they have, and give some advice. Or we we can do a full design for them. Um, if they don't have any horticultural background, we can help them with choosing the right plants for the right spot, um, right through to just accessing all the plants ourselves and putting them into place. So we can do the whole thing from beginning to end, see it all through. But we're working with private um, householders. Um, we can do community projects like orchards, um, and we're, we're working potentially with um, businesses in Liverpool and Manchester, greening up their spaces as well because um, it's the future. And I think more people are coming to realise that this is the right way to go about putting green spaces into place that work really well for people and planet. So. So yeah, we've done we've done consultations, we've done training courses. The thing that's dominating our time at the moment is is garden design for people, ordinary you know members of the public with their own gardens and and some other businesses. Absolutely, one hundred percent what you expect from garden design. Come along, you look at your space. We'll do the consultation. We'll work up designs, and then we put the garden in place for people as well. Put, taking some stuff out, putting more stuff in, and so on. But trying to do it all. Uh, guided by some of the principles of permaculture, guided by ecological design and so on. So if there's something we're taking out, we're all thinking about how can we reuse that in the design. If there's something we're putting in, how can we source it locally? How can it be a sustainably produced product and so on? So so just trying to, you know, some of what we do might might look like, it look like an ordinary garden design for people doesn't always look like what you might see as a stereotypical permaculture design but that's one of the things about permaculture it doesn't always have to look like what it might look like when you google the word permaculture it's about applying principles in a way that creates a ecologically sound and produced space that works for people so so we're trying to slightly help the garden designing world as well sort of start to move into a slightly different way of thinking and presenting itself to the world. Yeah, we do spend a lot of time with the clients trying to find out what they like to look at. Um, so the aesthetics is really important. So bringing the art into permaculture is, is a really big thing um, because ultimately they want to enjoy being in their garden at the same time, enjoying the space. 
Yeah, to get in the barn. It's got to look good and it's got to work well. I think those are the two key things. Yeah. So people who may have not heard about permaculture before, how would you sum it up? I would say um, I I like to go back to where the idea came from and and take people from there. So um, when I say go back to where the idea came from, I'm talking about the the modern presentation of permaculture, which came from the 70s in Australia, um, which is really just looking some people looked at the way that natural systems work. They, they found principles in the way that natural systems work, um, particularly woodlands and the edges of woodlands, the way that plants interact with each other, the way that nature naturally doesn't produce any waste. Nature's naturally hugely efficient. There are relationships between everything that form in the way that a habitat um, generates itself. And taking those principles, um, they looked at, first of all, how could you grow food in ways that try and mimic the way that nature works because nature is hugely efficient and not by, by definition it's not environmentally damaging. So how could we take the principles of nature and apply them to how we grow food is what they did first of all. Um, and then over time, over the years, what's happened is that um, uh, it's evolved further from that, looking at um, how can we take those principles and apply them into designing spaces. but not necessarily mimicking all the time the edge of a woodland and that very natural looking kind of space. Sometimes you can apply the principles, you can apply understanding of the efficiencies and relationships between things to create ecologically sound, low impact designs that don't look like nature. And then it's gone even further from then into how can we use those sorts of principles for designing other ways that human life works, how we use energy, how we use transport and so on. So essentially it's learning from the, um, the the naturally efficient, low-impact way that nature works, taking a set of observation and principles that have been found within how nature works and looking at how they can be applied to use those natural efficiencies in, in the ways that humans work so that we can lower our impact in ways that are still productive for us. It's interesting because it feels like it's so, it's so needed at this time mm. and it's almost come at just the right time mm. potentially because I first got into it and was interested in um, what's happening with the planet maybe back about six seven years ago and just seeing that potentially the, the state that it's in and the path that we've been going down for the past couple hundred years and thinking if we carry on this way then there's not going to be there's not going to be much left in a few generations time so mm. this seems like this can actually maybe steer that ship in a different direction and if everyone is able to do it as starting with their own patch, because I think it has to start mm. with us, doesn't it? But then if we can then inspire, you know, the agricultural system to change in the way policies are done and all sorts of things, then potentially we can um, we can avert the disaster that, you know, looks around, in some places looks like it's around just around the corner for us. Um, I would say a couple of other things about permaculture, actually. One is that I think it's a term that's, needed and then there's an explanation that's needed specifically for the western world I, I think it's a thing that's needed by the western world and i say that because by what i mean uh, is that it's the the the, the western consumer uh, kind of mainstream world that we live in now that one has become disconnected from land and from growing and from nature and from seasons and things like this uh, are needed for people to kind of re-understand, relearn 
how relationships with nature work. If you go to other parts of the world, what I just described has been innate to the culture there for um, hundreds or thousands of years. And you don't need to say, oh, did you know that there are these patterns in nature? And if you work with them in these ways, you'll find these efficiencies. It's d- d- don't even need to think in that way. In certain, certain cultures around the world, it's inherent to the way that people still engage with, with their land and grow, whether it's through the diversity of things they grow, the fact they do it small scale, the fact that it's still very community-led and so on. Um, and so I think it's a, a movement that's needed more for, for cultures that have disconnected from the land. Um, but it's not the idea of growing in connection with nature is not a new idea. It's just that some parts of the world need to reconnect with that idea. Yeah. The other thing I would say, though, is that it's not... The answer in itself either is part of a mix of solutions you just talked about the need to for policy to change um the fact that we are where we are biodiversity is collapsing on a phenomenal scale the seas are becoming acidified and dying off and climate change is occurring we can't solve that right now uh simply by individually doing our individual things and hoping enough individuals will do that we also need to collect together and try and force some sorts of solutions through um, and that requires more than um, individually designing that it requires um, forming stronger communities and it also probably requires campaigning to, to an extent as well so permaculture is part of the solution it's a way of thinking about how to change the world but um, it's probably it's not a some good effort. place to start there isn't it because it, it gives you some kind of feeling of um, being empowered because you could starting with your own patch I think is a really good uh, stepping stone into understanding um, impact making impacts yourself Um, and then also teaching other people how to do it and then automatically you're starting to make those connections and then you're becoming a community which is why you started the Permaculture Network in Warrington. Mm. Um, it's, it's reaching out to other people who may not know about permaculture. They just understand gardening is a good thing to do, bees are a good thing to support, but bringing people on board and teaching them and bringing them into projects and help and, and drawing them into actually using some land together, growing food together, is quite powerful. Yeah, totally. And I think as well as, you know, a lot of us who've grown up um, haven't most foods just come out of a packet from somewhere mm, and right. you go and get it from a supermarket and it may have been shipped from halfway around the world or mm. it's in a package and you don't even know what them ingredients are I think there was something in America that it was Jamie Oliver was doing this thing with school kids and they couldn't they were getting shown certain vegetables and they couldn't even describe what them vegetables were but a mac a big mac or they could you know of mm. course um, so I think it's about that reconnection those learning That's right relearning what we used to do many generations ago and having that reconnection and also you said about it being empowering it feels so empowering you can get some seeds for organic seeds like for pence and then you can grow an abundance of food from it in your own patch for your own just love and care for it and I think just seeing that you start to see that you know we can actually live more with a with a feeling and a sense of abundance rather than a scarcity rather than feel like we can only get it from these certain mm-hmm. locations mm-hmm. we can actually um, create that health for us and that wealth yeah. that's right and it's, it's not that many generations ago either you know it's only you know 
we're we're in our forties. It's probably our great grandparents that certainly would live. It was a much simpler life. There wasn't anything like the same number of um, plastic, high energy using gadgets in the house. Um, you know, they would wash their clothes with a with a washboard and hang their clothes outside and go to the toilet out in the gar- toilet in the garden. And you know, there was the house was heated differently. Things were. Um, were simpler not that long ago actually um, and it's quite easy to imagine that what's the norm now has been the norm for a long time and it hasn't actually it's really not that far back to go before things become a little bit simpler um, although obviously there was a lot of coal and so on burnt to heat houses as well so it wasn't perfect a hundred years ago either yeah. um, the other thing I just, I just want to clarify though when I was saying about permaculture not being the solution to everything I didn't mean to imply that it isn't about community because it is absolutely about community and about uh, moving beyond the individual and into forming mm. communities that uh, work more efficiently together and in uh, in a, a lower impact way I was more meaning to say that uh, campaigning and policy change kind of activities tend to come from a slightly different place but um, mm. but yeah permaculture is a fantastic route into change yeah absolutely and I think it was something we were speaking when I came on your course was there's only so many harvests left in the current you know the current way of doing things the soil is degrading that much that you know did you say was it 40 harvests left we were talking about it on the way here actually I think it's about 40 30 40 harvests and depending on what what how the farmers use their land in the future really um, but there's a lot of work going on about um, soil remediation, and you've been on a course, haven't you? You, you know mm. much more about the, we run the current courses on soil, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, we've um, you know tapped into the the up to date research and evidence on on current thinking to do with soil remediation, and there's a lot of really positive news out there, really inspiring, really encouraging. Um, so it can be turned around quite quickly. Mm. It all comes back to the soil, doesn't it? Soil and poo. <laughs> so, so much of it is back to that. There's, there's um, the, the, the soil. It, it's, it's a common gardening mistake is to focus just on the plants, and and actually, it's the soil you need to focus on. Soil is, uh, if cared for really well, can be this phenomenal universe of of life that's all interacting. And if you can work with that. Um, it can help keep your plants healthy and it can help them give you great yields and abundance um, and the mistake we've made over the last few decades is, is, is destroying the soil, chucking chemicals into it and focusing just on the yield of the plants whilst killing the soil. What we now need to do is, you know, what people have done in for hundreds and thousands of years elsewhere which is care for the soil bring the soil back to health and then we can start still getting the abundance and yield that we need but we can get it um, without having to blast everything with chemicals it's always worth remembering that this idea that we need to blast everything with chemicals because we'll get a higher yield is a nonsense because we produce far more food in the world than we need the huge huge amounts of food that goes to waste at the same time, as huge numbers of people go hungry, that's because the food system has failed. It's not because we don't produce enough food. So the idea that we need to blast things with chemicals for yield is a nonsense. 
And that's before you even get into the question of whether we should be eating as much meat as we do. Yeah. And then you've got the idea of no dig, which mm-hmm. is a Charles Darwin. I've seen his. Um, mm-hmm. He does. It's great because he shows. Look, I've done this patch with we dig dig the soil up here, mm-hmm. and this we've not, and you can see the yield. You know, it's like a 60 percent increase. Um, because yeah, I think it's natural people think oh, you know you need to just turn over the soil and dig up it's something that uh, when you go out and we go out walking you see farmers fields you can't, I find it a little bit sad when I look at the, mm. the field and just see these big brown just landscapes all turned up and I think oh, it looks so sad where's the where's all the diversity where's mm. all the mixture of things in there and it can be so different and that's the thing what I've always liked about the idea of permaculture and, and some of the things that are happening now the solutions can be very simple we don't have to reinvent things. It's like it's already there. Mm. We just need to do it in a different direction. We need to just get back to things, and you know, use the, by all means use the technologies that are available to us now, um, but use them in the right way. Say so you've been like into growing food for what? Say how long would you say? Say thirty years. Between so, us, I'd say. Yeah, I've been doing it for twenty years. Yeah, so yeah. we've had allotments and gardens yeah. and. Yeah. Yeah. And is it just been a matter of you kind of just learn as you go, just just learn from people who are next year on the patches and stuff, and from reading books or watching videos or was the yeah all of that definitely. Well, that, we've been on a few different courses over the years, yeah. haven't we? Especially yeah. With things. Like... Lots of trial and error as well because that's the fun bit. Just you know you have some seeds. You sometimes the dates don't always correlate with the time of year that you want to sow them sometimes you just need to try it out and sometimes yeah. you get pleasant surprises um, I quite like propagating and um, you know making babies from my, my spider plants I like doing that and then I like um, you know, grafting is really fun as well as mm. we've got some crazy grafts going on in our garden um, where we've taken different varieties of apple and put them onto one trunk so we're going to have blossom different times of the year and different flavoured apples hopefully hopefully yeah, yeah. But, that sounds um, fun being garden designers people expect our, our garden to look like some kind of um, phenomenally beautiful well designed wonderland actually it's kind of an experimental playground for us it's, it's certainly designed with permaculture principles but it's got all sorts of bonkers things going on to try, trying out this trying out that yeah we like new flavors as well and um it's like a, i like our garden to feel like going into really wonkers factory kind of horticultural style factory where you know you're walking around and um i mean even kitty our seven-year-old she's she can take you around the garden and tell you what to eat and what not to eat and it's just really nice showing people around and seeing their faces when they try something they've never tasted before, like um, tune, tuna sinensis. It's um, a really nice tree. We've got a bright pink flamingo variety and the leaves taste of curry or onion. Um, and then you can go along from there and then you can try some um, sweet Sicily and get a real anisidi shot in your mouth and then you get the seeds that are like sweets. And it's just lovely walking around, pinching bits here and there. Love that term about it being an experimental playground. And yeah, just, to have some fun. I think so, mm. and I think that's something. In a way, as we've grown up, we, we kind of lose that play element to us, mm. and and getting back to nature and just having fun yeah. rather than things like everyone has to have a goal and a, an output and stuff like that. So, 
So, and it must, um, you just touching then about your, your daughter, it must be amazing for her to grow up in that kind of environment, to just be, um, you know, in that space and learning. And I think you've got chickens and stuff and just having that connection with the land. I've got a friend as well who's a gardener. Um, he grows all his own food and stuff. And he's, again, his daughter is probably a few years older than, than yours and, and she's been through that whole process with him. So she's getting such a um, education in all of that just by a byproduct of just being with you guys. So I think more families that are like that mm-hmm. than the generations that are going to go up, they're the ones that are really going to help change some things big time. I think making it normal for them as well. I think she doesn't know. She's having an amazing childhood. And we've got four children in the family. and They're, they're just growing up with this being normal for them. But I think we'll, we'll know if it's worked when, when we see what they do with their own patches. Mm. Um, but but it, being normal is the right thing. Being in touch with nature, being seeing food growing in your back garden, going down to get the eggs from the hens... It's not novelty, it's just what you do to get food on your plate. I was just going to say, the other um, the other thing we want Kitty, our daughter, to grow up with, and the others is with um, uh, not just that engagement with the garden and the food growing and the hens and so on there, but also the environment that's all around us, nature that's all around us. So also understanding, you know, learning about what, trees and plants grow in the place that we live and understanding, learning a bit about the fungus and the birds and you know everything else that's around her her habitat, it becoming more normal and so that you know there are fewer and fewer children that grow up knowing varieties of trees and, and what shrubs are growing in their own environment and what birds are coming to the garden and these should be, these should be normal knowledge um, and I would rather I would rather children could tell you what birds are coming to the garden before they could tell you what Pokemon characters are which ones, but it's the other way around at the moment, and we just want to kind of help our ones grow up with a little bit more of a balance, I suppose, understanding a little bit more of the natural world around them as well as the manufactured one. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it's that it's definitely needed, and it's happening at this time. Where would you ask? Think people should go in terms of if they wanted to be developing their own patch and say at the moment they've all they've got is a maybe they've just got concrete or they've got a bit of lawn and they want to get into this and they want to start just growing some of their own food and any tips or hints that you'd offer them just to, to get started? Give us a ring. <laughs> get in touch. We'll come and help you. Um, there's a wealth of knowledge on the internet, and that's one good thing about the internet. You can pretty much find out anything. Um, go along to. Um, other people's gardens, see what they're growing, go down and have a look around the allotments. Um, but pretty much any space can grow something. Even um, some car parks have been turned over into food growing areas with skips um, or with um, big grow bags everywhere. Um, you just build up. If you have concrete, you can just put raised beds on. So there shouldn't be too much stopping people if they really want to grow something that windowsills, hanging baskets, vertical spaces, there's potential everywhere for growing food. Yeah, if people just want to start with growing food, then um, if they're right at the beginning, then then buy yourself a simple book on how to grow food. There are some great people, like uh, really well-known people, like uh, Monty Don and Bob Flowerdew, for example, both of whom are organic and have been organic gardeners for a long time, who give really good kind of basic 
how to grow stuff kind of guides and books and so on but who you know you won't see them slipping in any suggestions about using peat based composts or chemicals to control your your pests so you can kind of be guided through the simple steps without having to take those compromises um uh, i would yeah and then i think there is some really good stuff online particularly around some of the more ecological design things patrick whitefield um who's no longer with us was a great permaculture trainer who um who was very based on the principles of growing the permaculture in terms of the land and, and produce and yield and so on and he's got some great videos and some great books actually worth reading i wouldn't say rate i would say don't rush into doing a, a, a permaculture design certificate uh, if you want to know how to grow food um, because permaculture design certificates don't actually teach you how to grow food they teach about the principles of of permaculture the, the natural systems and uh, uh, patterns that are out there and how they can be used in design but you can go on one, a course you can come away uh, and still don't know how to grow an onion so um, if you want to know how to grow food do go for the basics of you know how does soil work how do you how do you grow what a shrub how do you grow a tree how to grow annual veg perennial veg and so on um, there's some great simple guides out there and then if you want to delve into the world of uh, permaculture design then there are some good books um, as I say Patrick Whitefield's done a good one there's a guy called Aranya who's done a really good simple introduction to permaculture permaculture magazine is very uh, enlightening, full of all sorts of interesting projects going on, quite inspiring stuff. Um, and a permaculture design certificate is a route to really kind of delving yourself a bit more deeply into the ideas. And you guys have got a do a regular article, do you, in your local paper? We do. We um, we have a regular monthly column in the Warrington Guardian, um, and we try to kind of tap into what's going on at that time of year and give some top tips, some advice, some something we might have learned ourselves that we want to share um, or projects that we might be working on and hopefully with the community as well we might be able to um, launch something in the future. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a nice way to reach out into the local community. And you getting a good response from it? Really? It's not a two-way really conversation two-way things, really. It's, yeah. um, it's more just... Um, having a presence in the community and um, but, but people have said they know we're around so that's good people know we're, we're in Warrington and we're busy we're doing good stuff mm. well I think it's great that you're you know you've got a, a platform there to be putting out there and you know some pe- people will be picking up and be getting inspired mm. and it'll be seeping through and I often think as well sometimes about when you're going to make change and stuff it's sometimes you just need to trigger that it might be two years three years four years or whatever away before you actually start something but you have to get that seed planted somewhere don't you and someone could be picking up that and Mm. and, you know maybe not into that sort of way of thinking or that that and that kind of approach and yeah planting some seeds so um so away from sort of patch of the planet and i'm interested to find out a bit more about you guys, as you got some like interesting projects and pasts and what you're doing and stuff, and I know with you, Neil, you're the CEO of the the Orchard Project. Yeah, I am at the moment. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm there for a few more months. I've been there for a few years. Um, I'm actually leaving uh, to be able to start moving towards uh, some of the things we want to do with our lives. Patch of the Planet being one of them, and um, 
dreams of uh, more engagement with the land and so on uh, in our personal lives. But at the moment, yeah, I, I co-run the Orchard Project, which is a national charity. It's the only national charity in the country that's focused solely on community orchards. Um, so we create and restore urban community orchards um, so that's all about the same stuff we've been talking about it's reconnecting communities with growing food um, and it's embedding food growing right into the heart of urban spaces where um, where it's been lost um, you know a hundred years ago there were uh, vastly more orchards than there were in this country and many 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 more people lived um, uh, in rural areas and have an engagement and a relationship with land and over that hundred years since to up to where we are now the opposite has happened the orchards have disappeared and at the same time people have been completely disconnected from their land and now living in an urban space people uh, relationship with food comes with their supermarket and uh, quite often they're not that connected with their neighbors and their nearby community either so what the Orchard Project tries to do is it tries to address that really. We try we embed food growing into the heart of urban spaces, but a type of food growing that's long lasting, it's perennial, it's trees. You put an apple tree in the ground, it can be there a hundred years later if it stays healthy and if it's cared for. So you you plant a legacy for that community. The community can engage within it with traditional events that have been going on for many hundreds of years, annual wassailing in January and apple days, which were just invented a few decades ago, um, which are excuses for people to come together. But an orchard doesn't require you to be there every every couple of days weeding and watering and so on, you know. It, it, it's, a, it's a slower, gentler uh, type of uh, habitat and a tree will sit and slowly grow and it will need caring for at certain points in the year. Uh, and then you'll get an abundance of fruit, and then you can do wonderful things with that fruit, eating it, turning it into cider or whatever it is you want to do. Um, so, so what we find from doing, creating these urban orchards is, uh, yes, we create habitats in green spaces that weren't there before, and we um, we put food growing right into the heart of urban spaces. But we also, through the studying of what talking to the people that participate we find more and more people feel prouder of where they live and they meet neighbours that they've not met before and they feel more connected as a community and that's part of what everything we're talking about today is about the, the, the power of food and in relationship with land to be able to connect people together sounds really inspiring I have this dream that everyone will at least have an apple tree um, growing um, mm. whether it's in the front or the back and yeah there yeah. used to be a requirement in the 30s with the new the new um, builds after the war wow. every single garden had to have a fruit tree and um, in certain areas of new development and every um, boundary had to be hedged up to a certain height so that neighbours could still speak to each other wow Just that's got lost along the way yeah, along along the way. That's that sounds just like a lovely way to be. And mm. I think this is it. I don't know if it's either Hebden Bridge or some of the places um, over Yorkshire way. There's like there's very much there's loads of people that just grow food in the in the front, mm. and people can just go along. And it's almost like it's sharing it, isn't it? And you're growing it for the community, and it's not mm. just about I'm growing it for me. That's you're growing it to share. Todmorden movement, yeah, isn't it? That's, that's it, Todmorden. Yeah. Todmorden. Yeah. yeah, I lived there as it was. Okay. 
as it was starting. I wasn't involved in starting it, but sweet corn was suddenly appearing in the verges when I was walking to the train station. And yeah, yeah, that's a very, very similar principle to the Orchard Project, which is again, it's embedding food into urban spaces in a community-based way, and that's really important. It's important for actually for the resilience of communities to be able to access food themselves that is free and fresh and locally grown uh, and and just again just kind of re-engaging people with a new way of thinking which is also an old way of thinking which is that that we should be working together a more localized way to grow the food and to engage with the land rather than just seeing it as you know, I'll walk down the shops, the food will be there, doesn't matter where it's come from. This time of year, you know, you can go to the shops at this time of year and buy a bag of apples from New Zealand. That shouldn't even be legal. No, that's just terrible that that's being brought all the way from New Zealand when it's on the trees right now in our own country. But it's because of the way that the system has developed that, that um, uh, we've become disconnected from our own relationships and patterns of nature and food growing and so on. So all of this sort of stuff, Incredible Edible, The Orchard Project and Patch of the Planet, they're all kind of initiatives to try and re-engage us with our own kind of um, our own environment and our own relationship with the land. Yeah, when I hear about stories about that, like going on in Edmonton, it's just, it's so inspiring to see that so many people are sort of like going towards that now and just seeing like that, well, it makes just perfect sense. And I heard, whether it's a, an old wives' tale, I don't know, but I believe England used to be called the Isle of Apples at some point, like going back like a few thousand years ago. So, like you say, to travel, how many tens of thousands of miles is New Zealand away to bring some apples and mm. how are they going to come over, what, on a plane or on a, on a boat? And it's like, it's crazy. Mm. It's crazy. We could all have apple trees. We This country, this climate is perfect for apple trees. It is. Um, okay, maybe not bananas here, but apples, of course... So, yeah, it's got to happen. It's happening. <laughs> and that thing about you saying, like, you know, um, after the war, everyone had to have apple tree and the hedges were certain certain levels, just to us to redevelop them. And maybe it just happened to, has to happen on a community level. And then them ideas to just spread like wildfire mm. because it's, um, it's so needed at this time. And it's something that the new developers really need to have written into their contracts that they have to deliver a certain level of um, greening up that's sustainable and that helps communities. There was somebody, um, uh, who's the man that does grand designs? Kevin McLeod. He has a project going where on his plans every garden had to have a fruit tree and also they did audits in the area to see what wildlife was there and what plants were needed in the gardens to support the birds or the bats or the native wildlife that was there before they developed their land, they had to have all this in place. So that's just something that is common sense, really. Um, but that's something that needs to be pushed through with campaigning. Mm. And I think it definitely seems to happen, you know, if, if someone, some developer's going to go buy a plot of land, if their motive is purely finances, they'll cut so many corners and, mm. and whatnot. But if it's done more... I'd love to feel that there will be also developers, more conscious eco-developers out there that will do it on the mass scale. But it seems to be more like it's more on an individual basis and a more like a community eco-build, people coming together mm. and, and doing it that way. But challenges, big challenges that we face. But I almost feel like, you know, I was thinking about this, about the challenges that we've got at the moment. Um, if everything was all fixed now and all perfect, 
where would the growth come from at all? It's like, this is what I remember when I was doing my permaculture course. It's like, things are a mess now, appears that, but that gives us an opportunity to work with that and then we can learn with that and we can and we can go back to, or maybe not go back, but we can go to a new place, mm. um, which is better than any time before. So we've got this opportunity now to, mm. to make things better. I think this, uh, the, the, one of the challenges is this, that the, what we're talking about, a lot of what we're talking about is learning from what we've already discovered in the past works really well and, and a way of living that's much lower impact um, and that people that hear that and they think, okay, so you're talking about going back then, going back and they look at they, they think about what's back and they don't like the look of it so they don't want to go there. It doesn't have to be seen in that way. It can still be moving forward it can be learning from everything in the past it will be very you know what we're talking about is very different to what the status quo is now because the status quo is highly destructive and cannot be sustained um but um it doesn't either have to look like people live living in small cold damp houses that are hungry throughout most of winter and living in poverty it doesn't have to look like that either i'm sure that humanity is able to learn from all the things in the past, apply many of the principles we've talked about today and find sustainable, low-impact, thriving, community-based ways of living that are pleasant and wonderful for us. Um, that's exactly what we're trying to move towards, but it doesn't have to be a mirror image of what was two, three hundred years ago. Nonetheless, we can learn from many of the fantastic processes and efficiencies that existed back then. Yeah, and I think the big thing is this one thing I definitely tap into is the idea of like Native American cultures and to, you know the way they would live within community and the way you know maybe about 150 people would be in them in them tribes and the connection that they would have and between all the age groups from the elders to the parents to the children and stuff like that and I think their connection the land and I think when they would go out and they would hunt for bison or they would it, it would be a very respectful way of it it would rather than just going in and killing the animal, it would be almost like this sacred ceremony and this disconnection and this appreciation, this gratitude for things. Mm. And I think that's when I've noticed from growing some of my own food is the gratitude that I have for my space and, and what I can see that can happen, which we've, when you just go and pick up something off a shelf, it's like we don't really realise how many people have actually been involved in that. So we should be grateful for it all. So if we are going to the supermarket, like I'd like to go to, um, there's a place at Chilton, um, Unicorn. Mm. You know, you go get stuff. It's like so many people have been involved in, when we make a plate of food, even if we've grown it, there's so many things that are involved in that. The soil, the sun, mm. you know, the wind, the climate, everything. To, is, there's so many things to be grateful for. So I think if we adopt more of an attitude of mm. gratitude at times to, to what's come before us and what we've got now, then... What makes us feel better. And you're less likely to waste your food if you've spent ages nurturing it from seed to plant and then cooking it and you just, you are more likely to enjoy eating it. But I have found as well, um, I go down to get the eggs sometimes and I say, thank you hens, because I've been doing it with Kitty for so long, even when she's not next to me, I find myself still saying, thank you hens. <laughs> but I would never do that in Sainsbury's or Tesco. Or <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's a good connection. 
I love that. So um, you mentioned Kitty then, so we can kind of like segue into a, a different thing that I'm really interested in. Um, and she's with us today, um, and she's been really good. Can I say hi, Kitty? <laughs> Shall I? <laughs> um, so I understand that you homeschool Kitty. Yeah, she's uh, never been to school in her life. She's seven now. It's, it's a, amazing. It's brilliant. And um, so you've got other children in the family. You say four in total. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is this the? Are they much older than Kitty? Yeah, they're. I've got one at university, one about to go to university, one doing GCSEs, and they've all been schooled, and it's worked really well for them. Um, but schools changed a lot since then, and it's become much more about passing tests and being assessed from a really young age and and it's um, much less about nurturing the individual child and uh, and as we've discovered ourselves the importance of being really connected with nature um, and and we've learned that there's an opportunity to to have that with children by not sending them to school Um, it just seemed, seemed the natural next step for us when we had kitties to just do things differently yeah, absolutely. There's there's more than one way to to uh, develop and grow and educate a human being, and and uh, the the normalised one at the moment in this country is to send them into a school system. But there are other ways to do it, and we're lucky that we're we're able to do it. There's not some law in place that bans it, um, uh, but we're seeing you know a really nice rounded person developing from being able to spend uh, time in a, a different environment, in the home environment and with a very thriving home education network in the area we live in as well, so lots of socialising and lots of activity. It's working well. So there's, I believe, I remember you, you telling me a while ago that there's actually there's quite a big network and I was actually really pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. with how big that network is. There are hundreds and hundreds of children being home educated in Warrington and I think nationally the last time I looked was a while ago and that was 20,000 um, so that number is much higher now. Children yeah. are coming out of schools at quite a rate um, and well-being is, is, a, is a big reason for lots of families recently, well-being of the child. Um, and the fact that there is such a supportive network means there's somewhere good for them to go. I suppose when you you know you think about what we've been talking about today, we 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 think the world could work differently to the way it does now, and Western society could work differently to the way that it does now. Um, and whether or not the whole of society manages to get there, we think we should be living differently to the way that Western world works now. And so it doesn't really make sense then to take a child and to insert them right into the heart of uh, an education system that's based on the way that things work now, you know, where, where so many references will be to to TV programmes we don't really want to watch and products that you can buy that we don't really want to buy and the relationships with technology and mobile phones and computers that we don't necessarily want to have to the extent that maybe are normalised in... In, in that kind of community so um, so that doesn't mean that we're trying to create uh, an education system that's uh, for Kitty an educational environment that's denying the world that she's in that's not the case at all we absolutely want her to be understanding the world she's in but seeing it from a slightly different context and learning a different way to relate to that world and 
perhaps putting a greater emphasis on some of the things that uh, the education system doesn't emphasise quite as well. So, so if we're going to rebalance, um, rebalance the way that the people around us can live and the people whose lives we touch can live, then uh, it makes sense for that to be uh, filtered through the way that we educate as well as everything else. And how... Um, I'm interested in like practically, so this is, you know, been doing this for quite a few years now. How did you sort of like able to engineer this so you were able to have, you know, carve that time out so you could do that? The biggest barrier, I think, from, for most people is is being able to afford to be at home. Um, if you have to go to work, you can't be at home to educate. So that's the biggest problem, really. But um, So I, I just adjusted the way I earned my money and I set up Good Life Learning, which is a, a childcare um, provision for children who are being home educated. So I take children in the home um, and we work through projects and we have experiences. We go out into nature. Um, we do lots of crafts and art, um, all in science. I used to be a science teacher, so I've got some things that I can draw on. But mostly, um, for me, I think it's the freshness of learning with the children as well and being excited about learning together. Um, and then also the whole... Um, what I've really learned over the last few years, it goes back to the African proverb, which is how it takes a village to raise a child. And... Um, I remember having my first three, um, i just finished teaching, I, I left to have my family and I felt really isolated as an ex-professional woman without family because they're all in London um, and I struggled actually, um, just my mental health was, was really struggling with being so isolated, raising these three humans that I've never, I didn't know how to do that on my own. Um, so it was a challenge but this time being within the community of home educating families, I really do feel like um, it's the way it should be. And I feel really supported and I feel like um, we're all growing together as people and the children are just part of that village. Um, and um, we all accept each other's quirks and idiosyncrasies and there's less judgment within the home ed community. And it's all just about acceptance and moving on together. And it's a really nice place to be. And I think as well, when you look at the school system now, the world is changing so fast. Jobs are changing so fast. You know, technology is really accelerating. To the current system, which seems very, it's dated in many ways, and it's creating children ready for a system that isn't necessarily even gonna be around in the near future. So it seems like we need to be developing children who are, um, you know, developing their creative skills as best we can. Um, they're in tune with nature, the the social aspects, the physical and health and emotional health and all them elements to it, rather than it just being, you know, a lot of pressure that gets sent up on. Mm -hmm. And I found there's this um, study that came out and this thing that I always sort of use with a project I'm working on is Something like 99% of three-year-olds are classed as creative geniuses. Um, yet when they get to seven, only only 33% are. And then when you get into your 30s, only 1% are. So we're all born geniuses. Mm -hmm. So if we can, if we can let them children know, if we can, if we can nurture them in a way to think 
well, we're all geniuses, okay? Let's find out what's the thing that's excite you, what's your good at, let's nurture them skills rather than to put it in a particular box and be like, you are compete. I think the big thing for me as well is this idea of competition and competing against each other. And then I think we then start to affect our self-worth and mm. all these kind of things. Have you noticed a kind of difference between your children that have been traditionally educated to say kitty? I definitely have. Um, and I think competition within schools just breeds insecurity. And I think there is no place for that. I just don't think that there's any value in encouraging children to feel like they have a certain place within the classroom. There's a whole world out there, and you know, you, within for however many years you're at school, you are one of 30 most of the time. And that's really important to the child where they're placed in the order, and that stays with them. So if they're labelled as being bottom of the class, they go out into the world and they can slot into a really different place and be successful and happy but they have to take that label with them and I think that's negligent it's completely unnecessary isn't it it just doesn't help at all and we you did uh, bake off with a couple of them at home didn't you uh, yesterday I uh, did but it wasn't a competition you know they both kind of took part with with the full energy and creativity of it and then it was kind of judged at the end, but not in a kind of who's best, just uh, kind of how well, how, you know, some great feedback on this cake, some great feedback on that cake. Great, you've done, both done well. It wasn't necessary to have a, and you're the winner no, element definitely. in there. It's just not essential to any kind of learning experience. It just creates somebody feeling lost. Um, and there's no, there's no reason to do that to children or to anybody, actually. One of the... Um, uh, one of the truths of bringing up a child, I think, is that, that we're, we're, we're born with, with characters, we're born with strengths in terms of what we're going to be good at in the future. And, and if you insert 30, sometimes more, children into a classroom and take them through a fairly regimented process through a large number of years, it's very, very hard to find and then nurture the, the strengths of that person and the interests and passions of that person. Um, and so all of these children in the main school system have to be taken through a generic approach and then tested against that uh, because it's efficient and it's the only way pretty much that it, it can be done economically with the resource that's available but it's not the best way to create a thriving human being who can play to their innate strengths that they were born with whereas taking one or two of your children and nurturing them individually and finding their strengths, encouraging them to find them and then helping those become, you know, where they can place many of their energies and doing that in a community of other people doing it, that makes much more sense. And it's, again, it's the, it's a natural thing. It's the natural thing is to bring up your own children, not to give them to somebody else to bring up. So it, it, it isn't as abnormal as it sometimes seems in society like much of what we're talking about today is not abnormal it's completely normal it's just the way that we live at the moment in this society it's been positioned as abnormal yeah. not it's completely normal it's yeah. definitely it, it definitely feels like it's the natural way of doing mm. things where what is now is normal isn't natural mm. it's kind of become mm. the the status quo I'm really fascinated by it. I'm really, truly fascinated by it. And we don't have children yet, but it's something that I would definitely want to 
um, consider. And I think what's interesting as well is that you, so you've been able to carve out time so you're able to do it, but it appears that because you have, have set something up so you can bring other children in, mm-hmm. that means the mums and dads who can't necessarily leave their careers behind, they've still got a route towards adopting this idea, this yeah. homeschooling, rather than sending them off to some expensive schools or to um, like a Montessori school or mm-hmm. something like that. And also people are always talking about cooperatives within the home ed network, so it doesn't have to be an exchange of money, um, you can exchange your skills. So I, I for example, um, I can do science, um, I can't play the guitar, but Neil play the guitar. Other, other people in the network can offer different things um, so that they're in, in the future things can be done really differently that doesn't require money exchanged which means people, more people can become involved in the network. It is a bit of a myth. I, I used to believe many, many, many years ago before I had children that, that I had heard of home education and I assumed it was something that rich people could do. And I can assure you we're not rich. We're such a long way from rich. Um, and most of the people in the home education network are living completely normal lives. That They aren't all hugely rich. They aren't, or they haven't all got some kind of stereotypical rich man that goes to work and woman stays at home and educates it's, it's that's not what's going on it's actually completely normal people um who have, who have decided that this will become the priority rather than something else in their life and have found the way to make the sacrifices necessary to, to enable that to be the priority i think it's definitely whenever you set the intention for something you can always find a way exactly it might be that you have to unpick it and unlearn stuff and change things um but you can always find a way and it does seem like the total natural way to be, particularly because the world's changing so much and so fast, that to bring up children, well-rounded children who are comfortable and confident and, and have got all these skills that they're learning, then they're going to be in a far stronger position. Yeah, so we were over in Bali a few years ago and we managed to visit the, the green school and actually that is all developed on permaculture principles as well, all the gardens and stuff, so all the kids there, I think it's at the moment when we were there, 50% of the food that's in there is all grown on the, it's a vegetarian school, um, it's all solar powered run, um, they even developed, it's on the edge of the river so they were going to, um, they were using some sort of vortex to, to like harness the energy of the river so that was even going to power the rest of the school. So all really forward thinking ways of doing it. and actually the kids, we went in there and there's no walls to any of the school, to any, obviously it's barley so it's warm but there's all these bamboo structures and there's no walls, there's no typical classrooms, it's very much this fluid interactive space between the teachers and the pupils and it feels like it's less of like a, a hierarchical approach of there's someone in charge, mm-hmm. it seems this mutual way of learning and we were meeting some of the kids and these kids I've never met kids who were like 13, 14 years of age that were so comfortable and so confident. And I just think back to me back at that age and all the other kids that I was growing up and how they were. And I'm like, this is like, you know, it's amazing. Um, But yeah, that is like a, you know, it's a private school over there. But I think that can potentially influence some of the bigger school systems. And then also if we've seen homeschooling growing as well the way it is and people adopting new ways then... Mm -hmm. I think people are just they're realizing that the current way of doing things isn't working. It's not. We can see all the issues and the problems that we're facing, and it's they're not going away. And I think just to throw more money at it or to just 
say we need more teachers or more this or more money in schools it's the same system and it's just create potentially going to create more of the same when actually we need to need to rip up the rule book really and find a different way we do um, and um, I think we were talking about this earlier about how um, nur- being able to nurture a child's strengths and doing that for all the children you're, the end result is having lots of children with lots of really different niche skills and interests and passions and if that's really well supported you end up with a population that really speaks to permaculture in that there's a real diversity and within that diversity it's really there's a lot of strength and resilience to whatever gets thrown at us in the future and we're going to have a lot of things to deal with in the future that are huge changes so we need to have resilience and diversity in our children yeah absolutely i was going to say something similar good point (laughs) (laughs) i think education is actually a really good example of how you can take some of these ideas which you know the ideas in permaculture which are also ideas in in other ways of framing um a more progressive way of creating the future um and apply them outside of how you might want to grow food so yeah exactly that we should value diversity other principles in permaculture are to try and go smaller scale and more local for example rather than the large scale so if you look at a secondary school now it's it, it can be 2,000 children can't it and um, uh, if you can if you can try and fight, carve out a route to our future where schools you're right that they will exist in this country and um, of course they will they're not innately a bad thing either it's just how they're done at the moment is not uh, allowing children to thrive as as independent individuals and um, if we can find a way to, to to take the scale down a bit, localise it a bit more, and, and also enable more diversity both in terms of the children but also in terms of the teachers and, and how they can play to their strengths to help the children to thrive with the best styles of teaching that they can play to, you're going to get a better education system. Another principle of permaculture is waste nothing. And that should apply to children as well. They shouldn't be ones that are put into the kind of you're never going to make it anywhere, let's not bother with you. Or you might have skills, but they're not ones we teach about, so let's not bother with it. That's all wasting fantastic resources. So again, the education system, learning from permaculture, could be uh, one that that enables diversity and and plays to everybody's strengths. And and that will come from localising and... taking less of the kind of mass uh, generic kind of approach that's applied into it at the moment. Yeah. So our, our answer, our, our approach is home education and we love it and uh, it's it feels like it fits really neatly into everything else, doesn't mm. it? But it doesn't have to be everybody's. Um, uh, and there are other solutions out there, I think. Um, so what does a typical kind of week look like? for Kitty in terms of um, learning? Um, We have a loose structure. I'm not very good at routine. I don't really like routine, but sometimes it's important to have something in place. So Mondays, um, we tend to do lots of the traditional 3R work, uh, reading, writing, arithmetic, that kind of thing. Um, And she's really lucky in that she has grandma who lives right, right around the corner. And she goes around there and she does nature studies with her every week as well. So Monday she does nature study 
um, and lots of traditional skills like baking with her as well and knitting and things like that and sewing and those are the kind of things they do together which is really nice but it's more than just learning a skill it's about the bonding the opportunities to bond with a different generation and that's really valuable and that's something we wouldn't get in a classroom and Tuesday she goes off to forest school so she mixes with um, a bigger group of children then regularly and spends a whole day in the woods um, so home education group isn't it that they yeah run, so. yeah so whatever the weather no such thing as bad weather just bad clothes is what they say <laughs> so uh, yeah so she spends a lot of time out there Wednesdays I do my uh, good life learning with other children um, and I think I said earlier we do all sorts of things it's very child led um, but I do like to give them choices as well that I um, I put in front of them so science projects um, art projects history we've done lots of work on the titanic which they got really involved in terms of a living history project they became the characters that were on the titanic um and thursdays and fridays we share the home i don't know mm-hmm. yeah and saturdays and sundays we share yeah. home education and, as well. and, the, and it's not like term time only it's all every waking moment is an opportunity to learn something I think one thing that seems really interesting and about that um, approach and the way it's broken up is that there's obviously a lot of interaction as well with other kids mm-hmm. and also the idea of I love the idea of forestry school and you know she'll be out with you know a good handful of other kids and and actually being in nature yeah. which isn't happening is it as much anywhere near as you know kids yeah. get they might the best thing they'll get is some concrete playground yeah. to run around on maybe for half an hour an hour but to be out there and learning from nature. Um, seems like a well. And yeah. would you be surprised if I told you I met a child who, who picked up a conker and said, "What's that?" Mm, that's not that long ago, was it? Not this autumn. That's really sad. Well, I'm interested to know: Do you come up against um, like much resistance from from it, from outside, from anyone who's who's kind of questions it? Initially, I think people were. Um, because it, they didn't understand what home education was, I think initially people were a bit defensive because if they've chosen to send their child to school and you're doing something different, they feel they have to mm. defend their choice. And that's a natural reaction, I think. Um, but over the years, um, because they've seen the kind of things we do, I think they've appreciated that it's a really good alternative. And um, members of my family have opted to home educate since then. So. You know, you, we just get on with what we do, and if people like it and choose to to do it as well, we just see that as as good progress. It's influence. That, that's a good thing. I think like it's like anything, isn't it? Um, if you're going to do something different, something alternative, it's like you don't need to shout from the rooftops. You just do it. Just do it. And if other people ask questions or are inspired by it, then that's the time to start mm-hmm. sharing it, and and mm-hmm. people will get interested in it. Um, I think it's really brave of you to do it, and I think. Um, well, it's either brave or it just feels like it's just the right thing to do for you. It seems like it makes perfect sense and yeah. you couldn't tend to... It would go against your principles to go a different way and, mm-hmm. and adopt the, the current system. It's all an experiment, but then so is sending a child to school and um, not knowing what is happening to that child between 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock seems like a bigger risk in an experiment than mm-hmm. otherwise. If people were interested in 
doing some homeschooling themselves or, or finding ways of them finding a place where their kids could go and be homeschooled by someone like yourself or someone. How, where do people look for this? What, what is the, the route towards it? Facebook's been the way forward really for people um, joining a network. It seems to have been the platform that has um, allowed people to see that there is support out there and that's generally the place where events are listed, um, lots of different activities are shared on Facebook um, and advice and support as well so um, it's, a, it's a really nice, a nice platform. Um, there aren't many places other than that that you can go to to find out about how to home educate your child apart from um, education otherwise website and um, Home Education UK has a website um, but I would if you're local I would go to Home Education on Facebook and there's, there's likely to be a group for your local area but in terms of childminding, childcare you, you can't go to the council and find a Home Education childminder necessarily through that route so um, Home Education yeah. Networks There's still a lot of flexibility um, there in a way that people find surprising um, and I think it's encouraging but it's up to you how you educate your child so I, I think the first, those steps make sense the other step to do is to is to do a little bit of digging around and researching and finding out a bit more about home education because there's a lot of different ways you can do it there isn't one way you have to do it uh, you don't even have to slot yourself and ch- decide you're going to you know choose from these various approaches which one you're going to do you chop and change various different types of approaches you might want to use some people have very very structured approaches to educating their child some people have extremely unstructured approaches and just kind of allow it to organically happen over time Um, and there's a whole world in between Uh, any of those worlds there are facebook groups and websites and resources available on how to do it and books on how to do it in some cases as well so a little bit of just kind of working out how it feels to you and what you might want to do would make some sense and then see if you can find a network mm. or group nearby that um, it has people doing it in which case you can talk to them um, would be would be sensible steps and if you haven't if you haven't got a child yet or you've got a child but they're not yet in the education system then the steps officially are very simple you just don't do anything you just get on with it you don't have to tell anybody you don't have to register as a home educator or anything you just just don't send them to school <laughs> and if you want to do it and they're in school then you you de-register them which is a simple process that the the information will be around on their local authority websites and the ones that dean has mentioned that you can take them out of school and just get on with it it's really fairly simple uh to start the process um actually it's not that difficult to do it either is it it's not as complicated as people might feel as long as you're dedicated and you're passionate, you've got the energy and you're inspired by the idea of educating and learning with your child, then it's, it's great, it's really good fun. And some schools also offer flexi-schooling, so if you have a child in school already um, or you do need to work, um, that, that can be an option for some people. That seems like it could be good for transitioning. Yeah. Because <clears throat> maybe if someone, the kid's seven or eight years of age and they've been mm-hmm. in that for so long and, and they're 
look and the parents are looking to go down a different route for them to suddenly just pull them out and mm-hmm. do something that does sound quite I can imagine that be quite appealing if, yeah. if they're already in the system so there's no doubt that you guys both seem pretty switched on to things um, and very conscious about a lot of things the planet um, education children everything you know it's all kind of like you've got this awareness was there a particular trigger point that something like growing up or something where had an aha moment to be like oh, like something potentially woke you up to see to want to go down a different path the ozone layer in the 1980s was mine and um, aerosols that was my first kind of understanding that we're impacting our planet and uh, and it was a call to action that I was the right age to understand what was going on and to make decisions on what I bought and understanding that that had an impact that was my first moment of uh, feeling empowered actually I, I, I grew up with parents uh, that uh, my holidays were spent going mostly in Britain to uh, holidays in the Lake District of Scotland or Wales or Yorkshire and spending a lot of time walking in the countryside um, and stopping for lunch on the top of a hill and stuff like that and those were those were times I think when I just nature was embedded into me a bit more um, and in their different ways both sort of passionate about nature uh, and my mum is uh, you know real animal welfare animal rights kind of advocate and these kind of things filtered in I think to help shape uh, how I see things um, so it's, it was more of a gradual process for me there came a point after I was at university when a couple of people I knew start, started working in charities and that kind of clicked for me that that could be a route through as well so neither of us actually has ever except for the odd casual job when we were really little neither of us has ever had a job where we've made money for private shareholders ever we've always managed to work for either in teaching or in charities so um, we've managed to find a way through so far where that side of the uh, lifestyles managed to be aligned with everything else to a reasonable degree as well but um, yeah for me it was more of a slow process gradually sort of learning more and the more you learn the more you the more you want to do the more you want to learn really I've definitely found in terms of like self-education seems to be for me I found to be the best education I've learned more the past five ten years and I'm now getting close to 40 than I have you know it's just been mm. you know through books and documentaries and courses and workshops and just having that hunger and that thirst to just like I'm so fascinated about 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 history now but I what I got taught in school I just had no interest in whatsoever yeah. I'm totally fascinated about the past and and geography as well imagine if permaculture was introduced into the curriculum and stuff like that mm. but that's really interesting to see so yours Dina was well like a particular moment in terms of you know hearing about something that was happening in the environment the ozone mm. layer where with you Neil it was very much like it was part of a, your family it was kind of it was growing up it was seeping into you so that's that's really interesting so what's been, what sounded like inspiring you now? What's sort of helping you grow now um, in terms of, you know, is there any great books that you're coming across, any amazing documentaries or stuff that's kind of like inspiring you now to keep, keep growing and keep pushing? Um, I'm quite enjoying learning about uh, mindfulness 
and um, and feeling like I'm in the right place in my life now and the circle is closing and, and uh, just knowing that all the choices that we're making and how we live our lives are all aligned um, nothing feels incongruent anymore and um, it all seems to be making sense so I'm feeling quite settled and, and quite happy actually quite quite happy and I'm, I'm feeling a bit inspired about things to do with um, people taking control of their futures and um, new movements are popping up all over the place and people are obviously at the point where they've had enough of the status quo and I feel like this new energy is just bubbling up and it's great to be here and now I'm part of that scene so I'm feeling quite positive about things. I've, I've gone all over the place over the years about what's the most what do I think is the best way to try and get some sort of change to happen some sort of progress in the world and you know you, you spend if you spend years trying to in whatever ways that you can and lots of people do it trying to make things a bit better uh, and you watch and as you're trying to make everything better it seems to be getting worse it can be quite downheartening and you kind of um, you know I, I keep thinking well, what's the best way to be doing this what's the best way and I, I've been involved in large campaigning organisations to work for Friends of the Earth for a long time, uh, campaigning through politics and trying to create policy change. Uh, and that's one route. Um, other routes like trying to create direct change on the ground, like through things like Patch of the Planet or the Orchard Project, where you try and create real physical change for people, feels great. And then, uh, but obviously it doesn't create the, the huge scale of policy change that you need. And obviously, I guess you inevitably get to the conclusion you need a mix of mix of it all. There's a lot of debate that goes on about whether, you know, is this the right way to create change? Is that the right way to create change? And what you actually need is the full mix. You need a wide range, or to speak in permaculture language, you need a diversity um, and you need a movement to create change. And I think the things that excite me most at the moment are not the old... Uh, familiar organisations that have been around for a long time now, decades, that have maybe been doing the same sorts of things in the same sort of language, but some of the fresher, uh, fresher ways of doing things, or the movements that are starting to reconnect back with uh, learning from the past. So things like Incredible Edible, for example, which are actually uh, re-engaging communities with growing food and, and being in the land, the new movement, um, Extinction Rebellion, Rebellion uh, which is, uh, you know, have come pretty much out of nowhere to, to stand up and say we've got to take much more immediate and direct action on uh, ecological collapse that's going on right now. That's exciting. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, it, it, a constant kind of revisions of what we're trying to do keeps that movement alive, keeps it fresh, and that's probably more important than anything else rather than trying to find any one solution that's fascinating that's really good so just touching just something that Dean said about mindfulness is it something that's quite um, recent for you um, I've I've just assumed for years that I can't do mindfulness because <laughs> you have to sit down and you have to be calm and, and I'm naturally quite buzzy and, and um, I don't like to be still for very long but um uh, I had a few sessions um, a while ago and I felt real benefit from that 
and um, I have to learn, I am learning, it's not a quick fix, you have to practice anything you need to be good at, you have to practice, so it's just, uh, I need to make a conscious choice to practice something like that more, because I do actually feel real benefit from that, so yeah, it's a good thing to do. Yeah, something I like to ask people, um, like I'm always fascinated about sort of techniques or tools or daily rituals that people can to use to help and to sharpen sharpen the skills really or sharpen the mind in some way. So is it become is it become a bit of a daily occurrence for you now, a bit of a daily ritual or not yet. Well, well sure. that's the plan. Yeah. It, I need to be nudged back into doing it. Um yeah, it, it does need to be. We know someone uh, who runs uh, Wild Awake Mindfulness in Manchester, which is about trying to connect uh, mindfulness with nature. She does a lot of nature practice mindfulness. And we ran a course with her uh, earlier this year, which was uh, merging together permaculture and mindfulness. So we took people around, was it Marbury, Marbury, Marbury Park? Marbury Park, we went for a walk around there. Um, and we observed the patterns of nature that you could see during that walk and um, we allowed that ob- that uh, practice of observation to then feed the mindfulness practice that Claire then led during that session as well. It's really nice actually that the two did work really nicely together so um, that helped us probably build a bit more of a uh, sympathy for mindfulness as well didn't it? Mm. Um, I'm hearing a lot more about um, like barefoot walking and through, mm. um, through woodlands and I can't think of anything um, more peaceful, to be honest, than, than ripping your shoes and socks off and going for a stroll through the mm. woods and hearing the birds and the bees and feeling the wind and stuff like that, just, just tapping into that. And it's almost, it feels the way the world, the way we're living now, the way we're so connected to technology, the way there's so many people and there's so much pollution going on, we so need some way of either tapping ourselves back in to yeah. our source or and also just being tuned into nature uh, in any way we can like i i practice um meditation and do my best to get outside as much as i can and um, i tell you it's interesting just come back from helsinki and the landmaster 75 percent of it is woodland mm-hmm. and you can feel it when you're there mm-hmm. and they've got the cleanest water tap water in the world so the difference between drinking that or drink, I was in Manchester recently and drank some tap water from it, it was, the difference was phenomenal. And all them things you've just got, I love this idea of like, just we need this support, this nature support from us, whether that be from our surroundings, from wherever. So we've got a lot of work to do in this country to get back to 75%. I don't think it'll ever happen because there's, what is there, 60 odd million people here in the UK or something now? And is it only 1.5% left of the I love it. Is, is woodland or something like that now or something? Well, uh, yes, probably that sounds that sounds believable. But then um, look at the rewilding movement uh, where they're looking at huge open, huge open spaces of heather moorland, which are only maintained in that state for sheep farming and grouse shooting, which uh, neither of which is uh, necessary in that that type of habitat is not. Uh, the most ecologically sound it could be that vast vast areas of the country could be rewilded they could be reforested Um, there's huge potential there then you've got um, the kind of stuff we were talking about earlier when we we, if all the gardens in this country added together 
are larger than all the national parks in this country added together. So if we start to see that as an as a area for potential change, um, and we start to plant trees in our gardens and shrubs as well, which are also really valuable, birds can buzz in and out of them, they still create great habitats and food sources, um, then again you can start to have big impacts um, if, we, if we allow ourselves to, 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 to look at the resource that's out there, all of this open space, heatherland and gardens and so on, and, and, and bring wildness back to them. We can look at France as well, and they've um, passed a law where all the new roofs have to be green in the cities. It's loads of space, loads of vertical space we could use as well. So it's just being imaginative um, and being creative and um, just forcing things on a little bit faster. They say there's so many options, and so and it can just start. It, has, it can start small, and it can start with us, and um, and it feels good just doing it for you doing it for yourself and for your community and for the local wildlife in whatever way you can whether that's you plant an apple tree because you want some apples and throughout the year or you're going to grow some stuff which is going to support the bees and Mm -hmm. local wildlife or I I love the idea of um, we haven't quite got to that much in terms of what we're growing but to be able to just go and knock on the neighbour and say here you go we've got an abundance of this take some of this off you know and just this if nothing feels better than actually just doing things like that and just like oh yeah you guys got eggs you know there might be times when you can go well we've mm-hmm. got an abundance here why don't you take some of these over to your to kitty's grandma's or to, mm-hmm. to wherever and um, it just feels nice to be able to support your local community in whatever way and support your local wildlife in some ways so. yeah it does feel nice there's a lady who lives down our road and she puts her apples outside and with a little sign help yourself somebody else did it um, uh, locally with some runner beans and um, it just takes a couple of people to start the ball rolling and then very quickly you've got a little network of people trading with food. And it does feel really nice. feels good. And it inspires other people. Yeah. People see it and it almost in some ways inspires them to do it and it almost gives mm. them permission to want to wanna do that as mm. well. And before you know it, you know, and, and I think it ties back into that idea of community, doesn't it? Yeah. And building, rebuilding community from the ground up and yeah. locally. Yeah. A couple of other examples that spring to mind. One is... Uh, people looking for something slightly bigger scale to do than uh, the Gleaning Network, which is run by an organisation called Feedback. It's a voluntary thing where you can go out if it happens in your area and um, join up to a list and you'll get an email when uh, when there's a farmer nearby who's spent his whole year producing a crop and then the supermarket said they don't want to buy it and he's just left with it. They come out and they, they collect it all, tonnes of kale, tonnes of apples, whatever it is, and they they redistribute that to food banks and other good causes so that it's not wasted. That's something you can volunteer to take part in. Again, it's about just uh, taking that excess and putting it to good use. And another one which it would be remiss of me not to mention would be uh, a fantastic project, the Orchard Project runs down in London, where we uh, collect together uh, surplus apples from uh, from London, which are grown in the community orchards and gardens in London, but which uh, there's too many of for that community to use. We collect them together, um, take them to a cider house that uh, we've set up, and we produce uh, cider called Local Fox Cider in London, and an apple juice, which is then given back to people and sold, and any extra income that's generated from that then goes to the charity, which helps it continue to support community orchards. So it's a really good kind of circular model. Um, and should anyone be listening to this before uh, uh, the end of early December this year there's a crowdfunder going on right now to try and save it for the future so go to the Orchard Project's website to give it a little bit of support that sounds like an amazing initiative it's great
absolutely amazing. So we're kind of coming to the end of this interview today, but what I like to ask um, all my guests is, since this podcast is all about sharing what good people are doing, like yourselves, interested to know what advice you would offer someone who's looking to go out there and do their own bit of good in the world? Just keep stoking that fire in your belly because it's probably there and look for other people to help you do that. Gosh, what a funny... I don't know how to give advice. I don't, I don't feel like I'm uh, entitled to give people advice on how to do good. Everybody can do good. And um, I, I, I suppose I would maybe just encourage you to challenge yourself about uh, whether there's just a little bit more you could do. Uh, cause, uh, and that applies to me and Dina and everybody else. Um, uh, don't... It's, it's important not to beat yourself up that you're never doing enough it's also good to challenge yourself to just think is there any sort of a little bit extra I could do could I shop a little bit differently could I maybe support this group that's doing really good work is there a little bit more you could do to what you're doing already um, whilst also valuing the fact that if you're consciously trying to do some good in the world then that is something to be celebrated um, and go and maybe encourage somebody else to do it too that sounds like sound advice even though you maybe don't like the term of advice I'm a little bit like that as well you don't really want to feel like you're telling what people to do but that sounds that sounds like a good way to start for people for sure so I've really appreciated um, you taking the time to come over today and to chatting with you and yeah thank you very much thank you as well it's been great so there we have it. There's my interview wrapped up with Neil and Dina. I hope you found our conversation interesting. Um, I feel there's plenty of food of thought in this one to take away and for all of us to take those all important first steps in creating a more harmonious place, just as nature intended for us all. There was loads of things discussed in this one. So yeah, be sure to check out the show notes. I've included all the links. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please like, share, subscribe for future episodes. And if you listen to this, say in iTunes or something, then if you could leave a review, that would be amazing. So anyway, until next time, have a good one. Mm